0: We're going to uh, transition and we're going to open our Bibles this morning and uh, just want to say this this morning, if, you, if this is your first time, we have been in a message series that we started last week uh, titled this, Greatest Hits, Favorites from the Scriptures. Now, um, here's what I know is that everybody's got their own kind of flavor when it comes to a Greatest Hits album. So what I've kind of prefaced us with is that uh, throughout the series, um, we are going to, I'm going to invite different voices to come up here and share their favorites from the Scriptures. And, um, I, last week I had the privilege of sharing one of my favorites and, uh, you get me again on week number two. So, um, uh, I'm going to be sharing one of my favorite, uh, sections of the scripture this morning. But here's what I'll say. Everybody's criteria for their favorites is always different. And my criteria for my favorites in the scriptures are, um, stories that have really, um, influenced the way that I think about the Bible. Or stories that have really influenced in an understanding and putting a lens in understanding the Bible and understanding how the Bible relates to us as human beings uh, today. So uh, without further ado, uh, the section of scripture, one of the greatest hits and the greatest hit that I'm going to be uh, preaching on this morning is none other than the Ten Commandments. Come on, somebody. The Ten Commandments, yeah. Uh, A big one. Yeah, here we go. Um, And the reason why is because this is a big topic, so bear with me, right? Um, But for me, I'm just so passionate about this topic and understanding and as church people, understanding how the Ten Commandments uh, are in relationship with us today because many times uh, Ten Commandments becomes a pop culture reference that we're familiar with, but how does it actually flesh out in terms of how we live our lives, right? And the Ten Commandments creates a natural conversation about one of my favorite topics within the biblical narrative, which is the conversation of covenants. And it also helps set up what I would argue is the next several books of the Bible that I would argue are some of the most confusing when it comes to understanding God's character. You get deep in the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and you're like, what is happening here. You know, many Christian readers just pick up their Bible and are like, I'm just going to skip that portion. But here's the deal, like, rather than skipping this portion of the Bible, what are the implications of what this section of Scripture means in the Ten Commandments and how it set the stage for God in terms of how He relates to us as people, right? And the big principle I want to start us off with this morning, and why this is such a big deal, is this. It's going to be up on the screen. It's that God acts in accordance with the covenant He is in. That is a biblical Principle that we can carry from Genesis to Revelation God acts in accordance with the covenant that he is in so many times the behavior of God we're like I can't believe God acted like that typically is out of the the understanding of the covenant that God was in in relationship with his people so to start us off this morning we're just going to read Exodus chapter 20 where the 10 commandments kind of lie this section of scripture. Um, And then we're going to give a little bit of context and have some um, takeaways in terms of the implications for us uh, today and this morning. So let's read out of Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 1. It's up on the screen for you. It says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So context up to this point. We are in book number 2 of the Bible, Exodus. Uh, God's people have been enslaved, and now God has supernaturally released them from slavery in Egypt. And he's doing a new thing. The time, the biblical timeline's progressing, and God has slowly been revealing himself progressively in the ways and the nature of his character. And here we are where God begins to proclaim specific things. Verse three, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on earth, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, Neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor you neither, uh, nor your animals, nor your foreigner residing in your towns. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12 Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land you, uh, the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not cover your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant. His ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is where it gets really good and this is where we're going to be zooming in. Verse 18 here and beyond. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people... Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray this morning before we continue. Lord Jesus, I'm just so thankful that freedom is going to break out in this place this morning. Lord, if there's been people that have been living under a religious yoke, Lord, I'm just so thankful that a relationship is unlocked this morning in the name of Jesus. Lord, you came for a purpose, smack dab in the middle of history for a specific reason. So Lord, would we grasp this morning when we unlock, God, your heart, the covenant that we are currently in in relationship with you and the benefits of that, would we receive it wholeheartedly, Lord Jesus? Lord, I pray that you would give clarity to people who have been reading the Bible this morning and maybe have just been confused or maybe just decided to kind of gloss over some sections that don't make sense. But Lord, would you unlock new understanding this morning as we dive into your word and understand that there is something you want each and every one of us to grasp so that we can see your heart, so we can continue to chase over you and be faithful to you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Okay, so what's interesting is the end of the Ten Commandments... We have something interesting descriptive of God's people happening. And what's being described of God's people is two main things, fear and distance. A lot of fear up in those people and and, and some distance of saying, God, like we don't know if we want to have that kind of direct relationship with you, right? Hence the mediator, Moses, is being kind of pushed forward and saying, you know, Moses will be fine. And to understand this, and to understand the biblical narrative, you always have to understand the context leading up to this. And I mentioned a loose context of God's people being freed from slavery out of Egypt. But chapter 19, the the chapter before this chapter, helps us understand, like, what are these great ten commandments that God gives at this point in history? uh, What set this scene up? And one of the helpful little sections in verse 19, namely verses 3 through 6, help us understand what God was doing and what was initially being offered to God's people. So it says this in the chapter before these big 10 commandments get unleashed, right? It says, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, you don't know much about the biblical narrative, God chooses this like kind of leader out of nowhere, Moses, through the the, the revealing of him in a burning bush and says, hey, you're gonna gonna help be the leader to lead God's people out of Egypt. So at this point, like God has revealed himself in a unique way to Moses, and now uh, God's beginning to kind of release an opportunity, not just through Moses, but also to the rest of God's people. It says this in verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God is offering something pretty profound at this point in the biblical narrative. And what God is offering to God's people was the same type of offer that God had offered people in relationship up to this point in the biblical narrative called a grant covenant offer. Moses was the mediator up to this point, but God was offering relationship with an entire nation. Not just a few priests, as we know, ends up happening, but a national priesthood, a holy nation. Relationship in regards to not only God and this leader, Moses, but God and his people. Now, up on the screen will be the definition of a grant covenant, Now, a grant covenant, we're going to look at three types of covenants, and this helps unlock what is going on here and how does God act, right? The first covenant we're going to talk about is a grant covenant, and this is, once again, we're going to talk a little bit about this, but it's a covenant when a greater and lesser position or person came into covenant, and the greater one took on all the obligations. The lesser one only needed to receive the covenant, right? So it's like, hey, holy people, treasured priesthood, like, here you go, like, God's like, okay, we got you out, now it's time to, like, you're going to be my people, like, you're my nation, you're my people, let's have relationship, right? And once again, I mentioned that this is the type of covenant that's happened up until this point in the biblical narrative on the next slide. Three types of covenants we've seen in the biblical narrative up to this point as we read through the Bible narratively, right? First is the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, if you're familiar with Noah, Noah's Ark, right? God makes this grant covenant offer to never destroy the earth again with the flood. Then later on in the, in the book of Genesis... This character, Abram, which his name is eventually changed to Abraham. And uh, there's a covenant, grant covenant offer that really gets confirmed over several chapters. Chapters 12, 15, 17, 22. But the, the gist of this grant covenant is through Abraham, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then we have this initial offer, the Mosaic covenant. The covenant uh, that is is kind of created through the leadership of Moses that we just read in Exodus chapter 19, 3 through 6, where it's this national holy priesthood. This is who you're going to be. I want to offer this to you. I want to offer relationship with you, but fear and distance kind of spoils the ceremony. God's going, would you receive this covenant? And then he gives the people of God some steps into preparation For this covenant ceremony which was custom during this time that was happening between God and his people. He gave them a few and several directions and the people agreed and they said we'll do everything Lord. So then the story goes on as we read in Exodus chapter 19 verses 18 through 19 that'll be up on the on the screen. It says this, it says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace And the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So what we have is this moment where God speaks and now God's people are in the presence of God finally hearing this voice of God billowing out in power on this mountain that they're at the foot of, right? God starts speaking and unfortunately fear and distance starts to kick in, and we have a backstory in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the retelling of this story that gives us a little bit more behind the scenes of what was happening at this moment, verses 23 through 27, it says this, Moses is retelling this story, he says, when you heard the voice out of the darkness, talking about God's people, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, they hear the voice for the first time, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, The Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty, and we have heard His voice from the fire. Today we have seen a person can live even if God speaks with them, but now why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived Go near and listen to all the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord God tells you. We will listen and obey. Distance. Moses, be the mediator. Be the one in relationship that helps us come to terms. God is inviting them. Come up the mountain. But they're pushing Moses out. They don't go up the mountain. And what does God do like he does many times in scripture? He condescends down to our level to relate to us, and in this moment, God condescends and adjusts the covenant terms because the ceremony wasn't pulled off in the way that He wanted it to, and He makes an adjustment in their plea, in their pleading, in their willing, and is pleased with their willingness to obey, even in the midst of the adjustment. See, God adjusts the people's requests from kingdom of priests in relationship to just Moses and Aaron. The first high priest, as we know in the biblical scripture, in relationship. See, Exodus chapter 20, we started this morning, should have been this holy priesthood moment, but it turns into from a grant covenant, and it's downgraded into something called a kinship covenant. And this covenant ceremony is why the Ten Commandments are the way they are, and why they were given in the way they were given. So let's look at a kinship covenant up on the screen, the definition. Kinship covenant, different than this grant covenant, is a covenant when two equal parties come together, as in a marriage. Each party took on a small list of obligations in the covenant. This type of covenant had a small set of obligations and was very evenly divided between the two parties. A kinship covenant was also referred to in history as a parity covenant. So we know the small list of obligations. What was that small list in this ceremony that pans out in Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. Two copies were created, as was custom, and put in the temple or the tabernacle, this mobile kind of worship tent that the God's people obeyed and followed directions with. And these, both of these tablets were put inside of this box called an Ark, Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones fans in the house. Come on, somebody. Anyway, yeah, like three of us. That's awesome. You're movie fans. Hey, so am I. Uh, anyway, so two tablets, which was custom, commandment one, through 5, 6 through 10 on the back, two with both commandments on both sides simply because was custom. One partner gets one copy, the other, but God is the other partner, so they don't really have a, can't just hand it to God in his immaterial state, right? Just like, here you go. So what do they do in covenant partnership? They keep both. They keep it in the Ark of the Covenant, which was custom for them in the way that God was condescending down to their level. So they have this partnership set up, humans and God. Treated as equal parties. But what do we find out as we find out through humans throughout the scriptures? Guess what? Humans fail. Humans don't really do a good job of keeping up their end of the bargain. The nation of Israel was, guess what?
1: A horrible
0: covenant partner. Aaron and the people created created and worshipped a golden calf within no time. We know that. Moses is still up the mountain. Meanwhile, the high priest... Is, is rallying with the people of God to break one of those ten commandments by creating an idol and then worshiping it right off the bat it's like this isn't working out too well and this sets us up to understand the next four books of the bible or the, the remainder of exodus and the, and the following three right so the remainder of the book of exodus is this God's people beginning to walk out God's uh, additional instructions he gives them some instructions about the tabernacle, this kind of tent and the way it was supposed to be designed, the consecration of the priests. I mentioned Aaron was the first high priest who has who had many duties uh, to make sacrifices so that they could in relationship, be, continue in relationship with God, festivals, etc. Then we move to the book of Leviticus, which I know some of you in your Bible reading are just skimming it over, but don't do that because it's this guidebook for the priests and the animal laws. They're being catapulted to these additional directions that God is giving in this really unadvantageous covenant relationship between God and his people, namely. Then we get to the book of Numbers where there's a census, the first Passover celebration is celebrated, and there's a journey towards the promised land with, as if you read this book, 40 years of wandering because of God's people being really, really disobedient. Then we get to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. It's up on the screen here. Go to the next slide. The book of Deuteronomy interestingly enough, marks the transition of leadership and mediators. Moses is about to die, and as we know in the Bible, in, leading into the book of Joshua, Joshua is going to be this new guy that's going to carry the, the leadership of the nation of Israel. But because that's happening, terms based on covenant faithfulness is reassessed. Anytime there was a transition of leadership, there has to be a reassessment based on the new leader of saying, okay, do we need to reassess the covenant? How did the covenant partnership work out? Well, we know how it worked out. The people of God did not work out as being faithful covenant partners. So it left no choice in the transition between Moses and Joshua for covenant reassessment. And unfortunately, Deuteronomy represents the covenant shift of terms from a kinship covenant to what we call a vassal or suzerain covenant. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy, the structure of it, is created much like a contractual suzerain vassal covenant. The way that this book is designed represents basically covenantal terms that were reassessed based out of the failure of being a good, imperfect covenant partner, which were God's people, with God. And from this point, this addendum of laws, since the initial ten, because you read through the scripture up to this point, it wasn't just ten commandments, it was ten plus commandments. 613 to be exact. The ten sat in this box called the ark, and then from this point, there was this additional addendum. This massive book of additional laws that got set right outside of that ark next to it. This massive guide of six hundred ten or 603 additional laws added to the 10. This represented this new covenant relationship that went from a kinship covenant relationship based on those initial 10 that, the, that God's people failed to follow that is now being reassessed into this addendum of 603 additional laws in what we would call a suzerain or vassal covenant relationship In which God was in relationship. The vassal covenant, let's define it. It's a covenant when a greater and lesser person came into covenant based on the greater one's ability to destroy the lesser one. Instead of destruction, the greater one offered the lesser one safety in exchange for the ability to collect taxes and tribute, take slaves, and so forth. Typically this happened when a king conquered a nation and offered the people of that nation their lives in exchange for a level of servitude to his harsh rule as a result in this covenant, the greater person had all the power and all the lesser person had to fulfill a large number of obligations. A vassal covenant was also referred to as a suzerain covenant. So this is like the last type of covenant you probably want to be in relationship with because when you fail, bad things happen. When you don't follow it, curses break out. Like when you're not faithful to it, God has created a, a, a list in relationship because of the failure of humanity that is obviously temporary and has, unfortunately, repercussions when the, God's people choose to be unfaithful to that covenant partnership. And it's interesting to see God's grace in his heart, even in the midst of these laws. Because if you compare the culture of the day, the laws and codes and, and the way people function were very, very similar Uh, to the code and the law that God had created in relationship with his people. In fact, many times God, as you see, his grace shines through in the way that he was actually really lax on God's people and some of the consequences if they didn't follow these laws. We look in scripture or we look in, in history and we see such things as the code of Hammurabi, which was hundreds and hundreds of laws that many people during culture and society during this time had to follow and had so much harsh, more harsh consequences than what God sets up graciously with his people in these 613. See, on the next slide, this helps us define some terms here when we're reading the Bible and understanding it and understand what in the world are we sometimes reading when we're reading that first two-thirds of the Bible called the Old Testament, right? So what we have here is called the Mosaic Covenant that we've seen gets downgraded over time in terms of God's heart and what he initially offered this is also known as, many times referred to, as the law or the Torah, as, as, as ancient Ju- Judaism would refer to it, right? It's this first five books of the Bible where these 613 laws are developed and taken into consideration. This is their book of the law, the first five. Also many times known as the Old Covenant, which is also known as, in reference to our Bible, the Old Testament. Testament and covenant, words that are used interchangeably so when we're reading the first two-thirds of the Bible what we're reading is we're reading the story of God's people based out of this massive covenant situation that God's people were in in relationship with their God and then we get to this one-third of the Bible the last one-third of the Bible in a couple terms that are going to be up on the screen called the New Testament which is also known as the New Covenant it's a new covenant There's something different in the way that as people today, we get to relate to God and where we're at. Now, the book of Hebrews, for any of you who have ever read through the Bible or ever come upon this book in the New Testament called the book of Hebrews, this can be one of the most confusing books of the Bible to read. Many times it's one of those ones that you have a temptation to skip over because you're like, I don't know what's happening here, but it's amazing because the book of Hebrews, what it represents is the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. It represents this massive transition. The document is written to Jewish Christians pressured by the Jewish community to renounce Jesus and return to traditional Judaism. Like the the, the, the fo- early followers of Jesus were forced to confront Ancient Judaism and its followers are saying, no, 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 don't do what Jesus said. Continue to, to live under the old covenant, the mosaic covenant, the covenant, the history of how God relates to us as his people. And the author is urging his audience to stay the new covenant course and resist the temptation to bend and blend. You can't bend and And you can't blend, right? You can't blend the old and the new because the new represents something new based on what Jesus had done in the middle of human history. So we're going to read out of Hebrews chapter 8 and hopefully it will begin to illuminate what is happening based on this idea of understanding what type of relationship God and his people were in and now what type of relationship God was inviting his people into. Hebrews chapter 8 starting with verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. High priest. I mentioned this before. Aaron was the first one. Remember when that covenant relationship got set up? He was the first one who was required once a year to set up sacrifices that atoned, that covered the sins and forgave God's people. All of these laws in which they were required to follow. So now the author of Hebrews Is talking about a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Verse 2, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, verse 6 the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since. The new covenant is established on better promises. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, it's okay. No place would have been sought for another. Verse 8, but God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Verse 9, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest for i will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more verse 13 by calling this covenant new he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear what was prophesied at that moment in human history about what will soon once disappear happened august 6 70 a.d when the temple in jerusalem was absolutely destroyed when Jesus prophesied in front of the temple to his disciples, not one stone behind me as he stood in front of the temple will be left unturned. In human history, one of the prophecies that we can surely point to was the destruction of Jerusalem that was, that was prophesied. To a point that the temple was destroyed, that rabbinic Judaism, a new type of Judaism, had to be created because they did not have the resources to continue to participate in ancient Judaism. They couldn't perform all the nuances of the sacrifices and the things that they needed to do simply because when the temple was destroyed, August 6th in 70 A.D., Judaism was wiped off the map in its ancient form in which Jesus had prophesied would happen. It would soon disappear. And then Paul. Paul, one of the main authors of the New Testament, a follower of Jesus, who's like a modern-day Isis, who then got rocked and started giving his life to the cause of Jesus, right? He writes many of the letters in the New Testament, and he writes this in Romans chapter 7, which is interesting to the context of what we're discussing this morning. He says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. The body of Christ, the church. It's like the church represents a community where we're dead to the law to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Paul is making clear here for a Christian who has received and decided to follow follow Jesus we are no longer accountable to the law but the spirit of God who lives and drives within us thou shalt not as a Christian obey the Ten Commandments Let me say that again. Thou shalt not, as a Christian, obey the Ten Commandments because this represents a covenant in which we are no longer bound underneath for a certain place within the middle of a certain point in history. The old covenants, though, is a perpetual reminder that God keeps his promises, that his love endures forever. Yes, it is obsolete, but it is obsolete covenant for which Jesus' followers should be grateful. And I love how N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, he he summarized it perfectly when he he wrote this quote. He says, the Torah, as we've defined, there's 50 names we can give to it, it seems like, or also known as the Law of Moses at Sinai, Mount Sinai, is given for a specific period of time and is then set aside. Not because it was a bad thing, now happily abolished, but because it was a good thing whose purpose had now been accomplished. God condescended not down to be condescending, but to condescend and make a, the best situation possible for the covenant relationship in which his imperfect covenant partners were demanding. And then we get the kicker in John 13, 34 through 35, and understanding, okay, well, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments, then what? Wh- what do we do? What are we doing? What does this new covenant relationship look like? And I think one of the greatest sections of Scripture that help us understand and begin to unpack it's out of John chapter 13, 34 through 35. Jesus is speaking to his followers, his disciples, and he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. He's, he's prophesying his death. He's prophesying the same thing in which, and, and participating in this table relationship in which Julianne talked about the communion today. This last night, this evening before he was betrayed and crucified, he's sitting across the table with his disciples and he's Saying some pretty important things. He says this, he says, you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. It's like, I'm basically going to die, resurrect from the dead, reappear to you, and then I'm going to ascend to heaven, and then I'm going to fill my church to be the hope of the world. Nobody's expecting that to happen, and knows that's what's going to happen, how it's all going to go down. But in the meantime, he says something really interesting in verse 34. He says, a new command." Wait a second. There's been a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of commands up to this point. In fact, I remember when a guy asked Jesus, what's the greatest commands? And he said, well, he summarized two out of the 613 and said, well, the best way I could summarize it for you is by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but also loving your neighbor as yourself. But now, at the backdrop of this, he's, he's saying something new. A new command. He responded to that guy, but now he's, he's, he's with his disciples the night before he's betrayed, and he says, a new command I give you. Here's what he says, love one another. And then he says this. Well, what do we mean by that? Because love, we define it so many different ways. He says this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. See, we try to get ourselves off the hook of like, well, th- this is loving. When I judge you and beat your head over the, the Bible, that's loving. That's a loving thing to do. Wait a second. You don't get off the hook in how you define love. Jesus is going, I get to define love. And what he's prophesying is, I'm going to show you what love looks like when I'm put up on this, on a cross and I die an excruciating death. And I die a sacrificial death excruciating in an excruciating way to save every person, every human being. To get us into right relationship with God, which is intended by God's true heart and desire and which can only be set up not with an imperfect covenant partner, but with Jesus, the son of God, being the covenant partner with his father in which we receive all the benefits from it. He's saying, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Then verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I don't know about you. But I've been trying to follow that commandment faithfully my entire life, and it's real, 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 real hard. If there's one at the pinnacle that Jesus says prioritize, I can dedicate my life to it, and I'm going to dedicate my life to following Jesus and look like Jesus and know even as I get closer to Jesus, I'm never going to be him. But isn't that the beauty of life? Isn't that the beauty of the simplicity and the clarity of the Christian faith? What does loving one another look like? Well, Jesus explains and expounds on that by what, the way he lived and the perspectives on how people wrote about his life. But we never get off the hook of trying to love in the name of our own definition of love because Jesus set a new command under his new covenant that says, love like I have defined it sacrificially for your enemies and for every human being in which I love because they've been simply created in my image. I love what Andy Stanley says at the end of his book, Irresistible. He says, Jesus' new covenant, commandment, established the governing ethic for his new movement. It was simple, but all-encompassing. It was far less complicated than the current system, but far more demanding. That command demands way more out of us than 613. That one prioritized and simplified is one we can dedicate our lives to and see glimmers of Jesus' life flowing through us, knowing that there's still a difference between us and him. But we're going to dedicate our lives to being Christians, Christ-like, and allowing Jesus' love, his heart, and his grace to flow from each and every one of us. So I want us to land and end this morning on the big principle that we st- we started with, which is this. God acts in accordance with the covenant he is in if you're living breathing today and you're a follower of jesus you are not under the yoke of the 613 commandments in which god set up for a specific time and a specific place for god's people at that point in history but we are recipients of a covenant in which his son set up in relationship with father god in which we get to in perfect relationship and covenant partnership get to be the benefactors of of being loved and forgiven simply because of what jesus has done for us that allows us to step in a lifestyle out of religion and religiosity and into perfect and utmost relationship in the way that God designed for it to be as we navigate this earth in which we live. My prayer for you this morning is that you would receive that new covenant relationship all in this morning. And you would receive all that Jesus and the vision that Jesus would have from you from this point on in your life moving forward. Can we pray this morning?